0: We're continuing now in our sermon series called Belief in an Age of Skepticism, and each week we're kind of taking one of the things uh, that troubles people about Christianity and we're looking at it and answering some of the more common objections that we hear so often. And so today I want to talk to you about what happens after death. I know that's not something we often like to think about, but the Scriptures actually tell us that it might be a good idea for us to give this some meditation. Listen to these words from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon says this, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. This is an amazing claim. Uh, He says there is great value in pondering these inevitable realities, even if we don't like to think about it. But I think there's always part of our minds that knows that this life can't go on forever. Part of us knows that we are all just a doctor's visit away or a phone call away from being starkly reminded of our own mortality. I'm sure many of you in this room have experienced that in some form. You know how it is to suddenly be thrown off the course of your normal life and be given the full-time job of not dying. The one thing people tend to realize in moments like those is how much they've wasted their time when things had been normal. It's not like it's just about what they did with their time, it's what they didn't do. It's not just that they spent too much time watching TV or compulsively checking email or scrolling their social media feed. It's not just that. (laughs) It's that they also cared about the wrong things and they regret what they cared about. Their attention was all tied up in these superficial concerns, day after day, month after month, sometimes even year after year, when life was normal. This is so strange because we all know that this is coming. Don't you know that this is coming? Don't you know the day is coming when you're going to look back on the things that captured your attention and you'll think, what was I doing? What was I thinking? You know this, and yet if you're like me, and if you're like most people, you spend most of your time in your life as if you had all the time in the world to do the things you know you need to do. And so you watch that bad movie for the fourth time. Or you bicker with your spouse about something that really doesn't matter. Or you waste time with some other hobby that's inconsequential. We live in denial of this. And so today I want to encourage you to change your mindset. And just for a brief moment together, let's remember that we don't have forever, that our time is limited, and I want to think about what's next. What happens after we die? Is there an afterlife? Is there a heaven? Is there really a hell? Or is there just nothing, like so many believe, that when you die, you're done? Recently, a Pew Research poll showed that the number of U.S. adults who believe in hell is about 58% nowadays. I think many people struggle with this belief because they think the idea of hell contradicts the basic goodness and love of God and turns Him into some kind of sadistic joker. But here's the question I want to ask and answer this morning. How can a good and loving God send people to hell? A lot of people say, how is that possible? What kind of God would that be? Not a loving God. Seems like a contradiction. That's pretty much what people say. Let me just give you a a quote from a popular author who raises this question, former pastor Rob Bell. He said it like this. Has God created billions of people over thousands of years only to select a few to go to heaven and everyone else to suffer forever in hell? How is this good news? These are the kind of questions people are asking, and this is indeed a tough topic. I must say that I've not been very excited about this week as it's been on my calendar for a number of months. It's a heavy topic. If you're excited about this message, you might have issues. We could probably talk about that. I don't find this to be exciting. Necessary, yes, but difficult, and we must cover difficult things from time to time. You know, sometimes at our family dinner table, we eat mixed vegetables, and one of our kids, who will remain nameless, likes to pick out this one particular vegetable and not eat that one. So at the end of dinner, there's kind of this pile of that particular vegetable on the side of her plate. I think that's how some people approach the Bible. Uh, They pick the passages uh, that they like, and then they don't talk about the passages that they don't like. But if we want to be fair... We must approach everything the Bible teaches, even the, suf- uh, the, the difficult topics, the, the, the tough subjects like the one we're covering today. How can a good and loving God send people to hell? And so I want to divide this into three different movements today, three questions, and they are these. What does the Bible say about hell? What do we say to those who are skeptical? And then what do we do about this particularly, particularly difficult doctrine? So, What does the Bible say? What do we say? And what do we do? Uh, Because this is such a heavy topic, why don't we pause and ask for God's help before we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads and we close our eyes for just a moment. Because we come here this morning because we want to know what is true. And we also recognize that we have the ability to believe distortions and we want to be really careful about that. And so you have promised us that your spirit would guide us into all truth. And I pray that he would do that today. Show us what is true about who you are. Show us what is true about sin. Show us what is true from your word and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what you say is true, no matter how it causes us to rearrange our own opinions, no matter the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first question, what does the Bible say? That's where we go for answers. We don't go to ACDC who said hell ain't a bad place to be. It's where all my friends are. Uh, We don't go to, uh, uh, you know, Dante's Inferno and take some medieval version of all these different levels of of hell. Uh, We don't go to the Halloween store and look at a devil dressed up in tights carrying a pitchfork. Uh, We go to the scriptures. So, let's look at a key A few key verses there uh, that show us the key terms when it comes to thinking about the reality of hell. First, the primary word for hell in the New Testament is the word Gehenna. You see that word in Matthew 23, verse 23, where Jesus is speaking to his enemies. Let me put it up on the screen for you. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The word Gehenna there is used 12 different times in the New Testament, every single time by Jesus. It's a compound word. Geh means valley, and henna means Hinnom. So it referred to the Valley of Hinnom. That was actually a geographical place on the west side of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, you can read about what happened there in Second Kings chapter 16. That's where they would sacrifice their children to the god Molech in the fire. Many scholars believe, though, that by the time Jesus came, it was basically the city dump in the first century. So people would go to the valley of Hinnom and toss their garbage there, and there was this constant fire burning, and all the trash went there. As you might imagine, there was animals there fighting over the trash and lots of other gross things like worms and maggots. It was really kind of a repulsive place. This became an earthly picture of a heavenly reality, an earthly picture of a spiritual reality, I should say, a picture of this place called hell, Gehenna. The next word for hell used in the Bible is the word Hades or Sheol. In the New Testament, it's called Hades 11 times. In the Old Testament, it's called Sheol 65 times. And sometimes those words just mean the place of the grave. But other times, they are used to describe an intermediate state. And we see that, like in passages such as Luke chapter 16. Maybe you're familiar with this one. Jesus said, Now there was a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." The warning of this text is sobering. And I'll come back to that in a moment. First, notice the word Hades there. The New International Dictionary of the New Testament describes that place as a temporary place for souls prior to resurrection, where the good are separated from the bad. The good being in the bosom of Abraham, the bad being in Hades. We don't know everything about this place, We do know there doesn't appear to be any soul sleep happening in Hades, as you can see here. And we also know that there's a chasm that's fixed, and one person cannot go to the other side of this chasm. And we know that in the scriptures we learn Hades is a temporary dwelling place, as there is a future for death in Hades found in Revelation 20, which says this. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final stop. This is the place that uh, was prepared beforehand for the devil and his angels. Now, when it comes to interpreting the lake of fire, some people see these flames as very literal. Other people, such as Calvin and Luther and in our day, D.A. Carson, even Billy Graham, saw these flames as more metaphorical uh, to describe a spiritual suffering. We really are not sure about that. Whatever this place is, it's so awful. One time Jesus said those who go there, it would have been better for them if they were never born in Matthew 26, verse 24. So these are the terms. The only other term in the scriptures that you may have heard of is the term Tartarus, and that's found in Second Peter 2, verse 4, to describe the underworld and a place where demons reside and are bound there. You really don't need to know much about that, though. These are the key words in the scriptures. Besides these key words for hell, there are other descriptions of hell littered and sprinkled throughout the pages of the Bible. In Isaiah 66, it's described as a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. In Matthew 22, it's described as outer darkness. In Mark 9, it's a place where the fire never goes out. And in Matthew 25, it's a place that has weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can you just imagine a place like the one described in these passages? I mean, the power of these scriptures is absolutely astounding, In the day that we live where everybody likes to speak about wonderful things and cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace, sometimes preachers of the Bible like myself kind of have to come forward and ruin everybody's party. And we have to say, stop for a second and just think about the end of your life, where you're heading, and what God says in the totality of his word. And how is it that we can be so inclined to just give ourselves to the flesh when We look at this train that's coming our way for real people that we know, real friends, real family, neighbors, co-workers. I mean, we're talking about people who don't know Christ that this applies to. That is a very sobering thought. This is what the scripture teaches in so many different places. And theologians uh, have a debate about these scriptures. And there's four main views. There's the traditional view, there's the purgatory view, the universalist view, and the conditionalist view. The traditional view is the view that teaches that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. I imagine you're probably most familiar with this view. This is the view that I would lean toward. the reason is because of those verses that we read earlier. But also, if you study Second Temple Judaism and the dominant views of hell in the first century, which I know is so exciting... If you study that, you realize that this is what they thought about the future for the wicked, and this is the age where Jesus lived. And if Jesus disagreed with what they thought, we all know Jesus had no problem expressing his disagreement with the religious leaders of his day. And so if he did disagree, he would have said something, but he doesn't. And so because of that, he seems to affirm this theological view. The next view is the view of purgatory. It's widely taught in the Catholic Church, though there are many Protestants who believe in purgatory as well. You may not know that. Purgatory, they believe, is a vestibule or an antechamber or a waiting place prior to entering heaven for believers. It's a place of purification. They see this place not as punitive, but as purifying. And so it's disciplinary and it is restorative. They say we must endure suffering after this life to purge us from the rest of our sins. After all, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so if our sanctification process is not finished in this life, they say it will continue in the next life in purgatory. The problem with this view is it really doesn't have any biblical support. Instead, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, when I depart from the body, I'm going to be with Christ. Uh, We don't hear about this long process of sanctification after death. Instead, what we actually read about is verses like in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says we will be changed not over a long period of time, but in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And so glorification happens instantly. Uh, The third view there you see is the universalist position. This is the view that everybody who has ever lived, regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they've done, will eventually get to heaven. Probably the most popular proponent of universalism in our generation is former pastor Rob Bell. This is what he says in his book, Love Wins. The dominant story of the Bible is a God who wants to restore and renew and reconcile and redeem this world. So given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. While this view might seem attractive and certainly is more palatable to our generation, there's really not a whole lot of biblical support for this view either. In fact, the scriptures seem to teach the exact opposite. Uh, If you read the book, Four Views on Hell, which is an excellent overview of this topic, one of the authors describes uh, this view in this way. Universalism has always impressed me as the triumph of hope over exegesis. I personally would categorize this as a dangerous and false teaching. Uh, Not only does this ignore and totally reinterpret all the verses we mentioned earlier that speak about this awful future for the wicked, but this view has to, by definition, speculate about some kind of post-mortem opportunity to accept Jesus' offer of salvation after we die. The idea that people get a second chance to choose Christ after death. Rob Bell says in his book, again, Could Jesus actually say, door's locked, sorry, if you had been here earlier, I could have done something, but now it's too late? Well, Mr. Bell, let's look at what Jesus actually said. Luke chapter 13. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you've come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. If Jesus thought there was a second chance for the gospel and the opportunity after we died, he sure could have been a lot clearer, a lot more clear than he was. The future for the wicked seems to be a reality Uh, that cannot be gone back upon. The, The fourth view is the view of conditionalism or conditional mortality. Those who hold this view teach that, yes, there is a hell, yes, there is a judgment, but it doesn't last all eternity. Another name for this view is terminal punishment. Proponents of this view would be like John Stott or John Stackhouse. They teach that eventually the soul of the unbeliever will be annihilated, because they say the soul is not intrinsically immortal. So they teach that people are only given everlasting life conditionally. Namely, on the condition of them accepting the gospel. Otherwise, they perish. And so they emphasize the words in the scriptures that describe the end of the wicked, like these you see up on the screen. That there is a punishment, a destruction, an everlasting destruction. There will be wrath, perishing. And Revelation 21, eight says... It's called the second death. Other images in the Bible that you see there that describe the end of the wicked would be like their chaff that gets blown away or weeds or branches that wither or they're like a destroyed house or a discarded fish or an uprooted plant or a chopped down tree. All of these images, they say, talk about an eternal punishment but not necessarily an eternal punishing. In other words, they say it's not the act of punishing that's eternal, it's the result of the punishing that's eternal. There are serious scholars who hold this view. If you want to read the seminal work on this, it's by Edward Fudge. It's called The Fire That Consumes. For me personally, in the end, I still lean towards the traditional view, though. There's a couple passages that stick in my mind like a piece of glass that I can't interpret in any other way. Let me give you two. Matthew 25. Jesus said this, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The word eternal there is the word ionios, and though it does have a range of meaning, it's used 64 times to describe the eternality of heaven. And it's used here and seven other times to describe the eternality of hell. It seems to me like there is a parallel going on here. Whatever is true for one is true for the other. Theologian A.A. Hodge said there is no word more emphatic for eternal than the one used about hell in the New Testament. The other passage is Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. It states this, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast. And when I read that, I don't see an end to the punishment of the wicked. They will have no rest day or night It seems to me to be unceasing, and so that's why I lean towards the more traditional view. Now, I'm a pastor. I take this very seriously. I actually believe in James chapter 3. I am held to a very strict standard up here. I'm accountable for every single word I say, and if I say to someone Hell may not be eternal, but then it is. By the time that person finds out that it really is, it's going to be too late, and I don't even want to think about the consequences for me saying something like that. I'm somewhat terrified of being wrong about this subject. We can't be wrong about this one. Too much at stake. Too many people at stake. So that's the first question. What does the Bible say about hell And you see that it has this very, very high view of God and a very, very serious view of sin. And so how do we answer that second question, the question that the skeptics bring to us? You know, how can you say that? How can a good and loving God send anybody to hell? Now, can we just first acknowledge that this is a really, really hard question? Does anybody else want to get up here and preach about this? I mean, this is tough. You put it like that... it really sounds kind of harsh. It really sounds kind of twisted, doesn't it? But the problem, I think, is complicated by the fact that the way this question is worded doesn't allow us to uh, answer this in a satisfying way. Let me just give you a little apologetics tip. When somebody asks you a question, and no matter how you answer that question, it it seems like you're in the wrong, there's probably something wrong with the question itself. Let me just lighten the mood for a second, because this is so heavy. One time I saw a teenage boy teasing his friend, and he goes, hey, does your mom know you're so stupid? Now, he could either say yes, and that implies that his mom knows he's stupid, or he could say no, which still means he's stupid. It's just that his mom doesn't know he's stupid. The problem is he can't win. The problem there is that the question is worded in such a way that you can't really get out of it. That's a little bit like what's going on with this question. So let's take apart the question for a moment. Think about that word good. What does it really mean to believe in a good God? Could a good God just overlook heinous criminals? What about the person who's committed a crime, some atrocity, and they have escaped the long arm of the law? What will happen to them See, here's why hell becomes important, and it's the first point today here. Hell is important because of the justice of God. If God were not angry at injustice, God would not be good. That God would not be worthy of worship. Uh, Even if we've been wronged in the human level, in the court of law that's here in this age, we expect there to be some sort of justice uh, for the person that has wronged us if that's true on the human level, then how much more would that be true in God's court of law? If God is really good, what should a good God do with evil and sin? What should a good God do with unrepentant criminals, people who do horrible things to children, murderers? Should they still just all make it to heaven? If so, is God totally disinterested in justice And if God is disinterested in justice, how can we call him good? How could we ever trust a God like that? If God is good, then he is just, and there must be a final court of arbitration. And the scripture says there is. In fact, it says in Revelation chapter 20, I saw a throne. I saw a throne. The throne that God saw, uh, the the throne that God God showed the apostle John here, was his great white throne, a a perfect, holy, righteous throne of judgment. The question is not how can a good God send people to hell. The question is what should a good God do with pure evil and sin? That's the question. A lot of us understand why there's a hell, though, for people like that are really bad. You know, we understand why there would be a hell for Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini and Pol Pot. But what about the rest of us? What about those of us who can't control our temper and yell at our kids or neglect our responsibilities at home or cheat on our taxes or betray our friends and break God's law and lust and steal and blaspheme and turn a blind eye to those who are needy? What makes my evil less than Hitler's evil? Is it the number of people I've hurt? Is it how badly they got hurt? Is it Something to do with whether or not I got caught? Is it because anybody knows? Is it it whether or not I, I meant to? Would you really consider yourself to be a good person? How good is good enough? I mean, do you really want to gamble your future on your own opinion about this? Because the scripture actually tells us no one is good. No, not one. See, sin is not just violating the law of God, although it is. Sin is deeper than that. Sin is this self-centered tunnel vision that I have in my heart, thoughts, and actions. It's when I'm at the center of my life. You know, D.A. Carson said, sin is the de-godding of God. It's when I seek to build my own sense of identity on something other than building it around my creator and my redeemer. And I want to make a name for myself. See, this is why C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Great Divorce, which is his book about hell, uh, there are a good number of things that would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live 80 years or so, but which I had better worry about if I'm going to live forever. Uh, Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that in my lifetime, it might not be noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. See, here's this point. There's this thing inside of my heart. There's this fiery desire inside of me that's not satisfied, Unless something puts that fire out. Do you see that in yourself? Can you see where it's going? Are you willing to go deep into yourself to allow God to put out the fire? See, the problem is I don't like to look at myself honestly. It's painful to look at that. I like to live in denial. I'm kind of like that character, Ebenezer Scrooge, in the movie Christmas Carol. Remember in that movie, one time Scrooge, he has some kind of out-of-body experience, and he comes upon this house, and he sees these people in the house, and he's looking at them, and he, he sees them, they're saying terrible things. They're talking about a certain man, such horrible things, and he begins to have pity on this man, though he doesn't know who this man is. Then all of a sudden, Ebenezer hears his own name mentioned in the conversation, and he realizes they're talking about me. What, what would it be like if that was me? What, just imagine for a moment, what, what if we could overhear God gather together somehow with the heavenly court and his angels, and he's, he's talking about the wickedness and the sin and the vile nature of members of his own creation. And then all of a sudden, while they're talking, I hear my own name mentioned in their conversation. And I realize, when they're talking about sinners, they're talking about me. See, there is a throne, and one day everything I've done will be exposed as I stand before God that day. Listen to the words of Luke chapter 12. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Ladies and gentlemen, the words on the screen are not the words of some fiery Baptist preacher. They are not the words of Jonathan Edwards or George Whitefield, or John Wesley. They are the words of Jesus Christ. Fear him. You know, a lot of times when we hear that word fear in the Bible, it's so upsetting. Sometimes I hear preachers say, okay, see that word fear? Stop everything. Hold it right there. Whenever you see the word fear, it just means respect and awe. And I know that's true. But then I read some other passages like this one and others, and I'm like, are you sure that's always true? Because, like... Some people who encounter the, the living God in the Bible, it sure just kind of looks to me like they're plain old afraid. Like John and Peter and Job and you know, Isaiah. They're terrified when they encounter the living God. I mean, it's not like they have to say, okay, look, it's God. Okay, let me muster up some reverence and awe. I'm in his presence. No, no, no. They're just straight up terrified. I mean, what would it be like just to be in the presence of God for five seconds? Might there be some benefit in fearing the Lord? Have you ever stopped to consider what's involved in the slightest sin? I mean, sin is the audacity for me to think I get to exercise my will over God's will. Even the slightest sin that I commit, I'm defying the authority of God. The reason I don't see it that way, though, is I'm so accustomed to doing it. My conscience has been seared, and I think it's no big deal to disobey the will of God. The Scripture says God is merciful, and he's patient, and he's giving us time to repent. But oftentimes, instead of repenting, I am exploiting his mercy. And over time, I do this so much that I just think, hey, I guess I can do whatever I want. It seems like I can get away with this every time. Not only is that not true... But God is never obligated to give me or anyone mercy. Mercy is, by definition, voluntary. And one day, the day of grace will come to an end. And one day, God will say, enough is enough, and everything that's sinful and evil and ultimately threatens shalom, harmony, and peace in this world must be done away with. There's going to be no more injustice, no more violence, no more killing, no more greed, no more lust, no more abuse, no more warfare, no more torture, no more sin. And I think that's actually something the human heart longs for, if we think about it. And Christianity says it's true. See, God is just. Uh, Francis Chan says in his excellent book, Erasing Hell, which was really a response to Rob Bell, uh, we must understand the love of God in light of his other characteristics. God is love. But he is also holy and just. It's it's a logical and theological mistake to think that God can't be loving unless he saves everyone. Such an assumption, while seeking to cherish the love of God, violates his freedom and sovereignty. So here's the question. What happens to those who reject God's mercy? That leads us to the second point. See, understanding hell is important not just for the justice of God, but for the freedom of man. One of our kids, when she was like three or four years old, uh, used to play outside in the yard, and she had this habit of like running through the yard and into the street. And we lived on a busy street. It was terrifying for us as parents that she would just not really realize this. Three or four years old, you're kind of old enough to stop running in the street, right? But she used to do that, and it used to scare Julie and I to death. In a way... Uh, The scriptures say that that is what I am doing as a child of God. I am running away from my Heavenly Father, and it's not just that I'm naive, it's that I'm rebellious. I, I am old enough to know better, and I don't want to serve God. We choose in our sin freely and continually to reject God, though he says all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I know part of this sounds even crazy that we as humanity would reject a loving and merciful God. But I'll bet you've seen this kind of thing on a smaller scale. All of us know people that make these unbelievably destructive choices in their lives. And even when all the people around them are like dying, saying, would you please stop doing this? And 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 we we may even get together and kind of do the intervention thing and say, listen, we love you, we're on your team, would you please consider the consequences of this particular behavior in your life? And they're still like, well, don't care, still doing it anyway. Yep. We have a word for that. We say they're hell-bent. You see the incredible hardness of the human heart sometimes. C.S. Lewis said, to those who object to the doctrine of hell you have to frame another question. You have to ask, what is it that you are requiring God to do? To wipe out past sins and give a fresh start? He's already done that at Calvary. What more are you asking God to do? To leave you alone? See, this is why Lewis said the doors of hell are locked actually from the inside. People after their... (laughs) Dead still don't want to love and serve God. That's why Lewis says this in his book, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Understanding hell is important for understanding the freedom of man. Point number three, understanding hell is important for understanding how to let go of revenge. Revenge. Oftentimes, I hear that if you believe in hell, then you're going to become an angry and hurtful and you know, malicious type of person. This kind of belief is going to cause you to disdain certain classes of people, and you're going to mistreat them. I came across this last year while I was watching the hearing when Senator Bernie Sanders was interviewing Russell Vogt. Of course, Russell Vogt is a Wheaton graduate who is slated to serve in the cabinet as the deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. And it was really strange when Sanders' line of questioning suddenly took a weird turn as he began to ask him about his views on hell. Sanders said, anybody who believes that couldn't carry out your office in a way that treats other people equally. You see the critique? He's saying, if you believe in hell, you're going to marginalize those who don't exactly agree with you theologically. Not only is this deeply troubling because he appeared to impose a religious test for public office, but this is not understanding the incredible resource of hell in that it causes us not to want to mistreat others, but it actually causes us to find a way to live at peace with others, and it paints the wrong picture of God as if he's some sort of malicious tyrant. That's not the picture of the God we know in the Scriptures. Look at Ezekiel chapter 33. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their wicked ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. See, here's what you have to understand. If you've really been wronged by someone, the only way to let go of your anger, the only way to let go of your bitterness, the only way to let go of your revenge is you've got to trust in a God who will bring about justice on your behalf one day. As a pop culture example. Let's say if your significant other cheats on you, what is going to stop you from resonating the words of the poet Carrie Underwood? I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped up four-wheel drive. I took a Louisville Slugger to both headlights and I slashed a hole in all four tires. I carved my name into his leather seats. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Right now, she's probably singing some white... Okay, sorry. I am joking a little bit, but if you've really been wronged, how do you propose to break the cycle of revenge? I'm asking a serious question. Romans twelve says, Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for the God's wrath, for it is written it is mine to avenge, I will repay. But if you don't believe that verse, what is gonna stop you from picking up the sword and avenging yourself? There are entire societies, there are entire cultures stuck in this cycle. Northern Ireland, the Balkans, Rwanda, after years and years and years of violence and retaliation. You did this to us, we're going to do this to you. You did this to us, we're going to do this to you. How do you break the cycle? The only way to really break the cycle, the only way to get rid of the rage and to find peace, is to step back and say, you know what? God will take care of this justice for me. Do you see what God's justice allows us to do? It allows us to be patient. It allows us to wait and put our faith in our sovereign, just God. The biblical question is not, how can there be a hell? Uh, The biblical question is actually, how can anyone escape? You see, Romans chapter 3 says, all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We could all take a rock and try to throw it from here to New York City. Some of us might throw it farther than others, but all of us would fall short. That's the bad news. And the worst news is that Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of my sin is death. The word death in the scriptures means separation. Physical death is a separation of the soul from the body, but that verse teaches that the wages of sin is actually spiritual death, a separation of the soul from God. That's my wages. That's my paycheck for sin. That's the bad news. But the good news of the gospel is this. Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can all receive that gift of salvation. We can all receive that gift by faith through trusting him. Just like you're trusting in that chair, you're choosing to place your weight there. You're choosing to trust in the work of Christ as your savior. That's the good news of the gospel, which leads us to the fourth point. Understanding hell is important for understanding the love of God. Now, I know for some of us that sounds crazy, and you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, That, that can't be right. The idea of hell is opposed to the love of God, but Christianity says, no, with all due respect, you're wrong. Hell is a scary place. There's fear involved. But fear is not the strongest force that Christianity has to offer. Love is. At the end of the day, fear will not change your heart, but love will. Why do you think Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else? Because he took hell for us on the cross. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was isolation. That was wrath. That was justice. That was agony. That, in an infinite capacity, because of who he was, was hell. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I paid your bill, you don't know how to thank them unless you know how much the bill was. You don't know whether to shake their hand or to fall at their feet and kiss their feet. I mean, what exactly did you pay? Did you buy my lunch? All right, thanks. But what if the IRS guy comes and says, hey, there's 20 years of back taxes. I paid that for you. Well, that's a different story. Unless you understand hell, you don't really understand how much Jesus paid for you. You don't understand or appreciate what he's done. You don't understand and appreciate God's love. You can't stand and sing till on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, for I am his and he is mine. I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. You know, the biblical doctrine of hell, you can twist it. You can... You can make it look really distorted. But if you really study it and you really dive deep into this, you understand this is important for understanding the justice of God, for understanding the freedom of man, for knowing how to let go of revenge and and find peace with others, and finally, for really understanding God's love. I'd like to invite our worship team forward as I make one more point. What should we do in light of this doctrine? I think the way to apply this is that we need to cultivate a heartfelt anguish for the lost around us. A heartfelt anguish. A lot of times I like to avoid the feeling of pain and anguish. But did you ever think that some things in our lives, maybe we don't anguish about them enough? This teaching, this teaching just breaks me down. Romans chapter 9 describes Paul as he's talking about those who will go to a Christless eternity. Listen to how he thinks about it. He says to his audience, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Because what he's about to say next is just so breathtaking. So he says, this is true. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed. Could you say that? I wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, for Israel. Unceasing anguish in my heart. That's what we need to cultivate. Hell is something we should anguish over. One of my mentors told me as a young pastor, young man, you should preach on hell, but let it be with a broken heart and tears in your eyes. So let me quote Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Pray for those around you who don't know Christ. Share the good news with them. Cultivate an anguish in your heart for those who don't know the gospel. Let's pray.